We have been going through this identity series, and if you have missed a week or two of it, I encourage you to go online. You can, you can download and listen to the other services, but we're building them around this idea of grow, serve, and go. Growing in our faith in Christ, serving those around us, and now we're turning to this third component, which really is, is nothing more than just evangelism. It's, it's missions. It's proclamation. That as a church, one of the things that, that our identity needs to be built around in, and if we don't have it, it, you just start to wonder, what are you guys really doing? You're just coming together to encourage one another? You're like, yeah, absolutely, we're encouraging one another. Well, what are you doing for everybody else? You're like, well, we serve them. Well, how do you serve them? Well, you know, we give money, we, we help with our homes, we do all kinds of things in the community here and in, in, in the global community. Well, what about the message of Jesus? Now, if we were to stop at just serving and not carry the message of Jesus, it's just I mean, why? There are a lot of, of great secular institutions that already do that. But we've got to make sure we're carrying the message of Jesus forward in, in everything that we do. And it is the very core of who we are as a people that have been so transformed with the identity of Jesus in us that we are carrying that message of transformation to everybody we encounter. Amen? Amen. This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. And I want you to pay special attention to who Peter writes and tells us who Jesus is, then on the basis of that, who we should be also. I was thinking on this, this subject of, of evangelism and going and missions, and I always think back to, Valerie and I hadn't been in Prague very long, and we had a team that came over from, from Georgia. We had a group of 14, 15 uh, college students who were out and were we're sharing the gospel with them, and we're meeting people, and we're doing what was referred to as ethnographic research, which is basically you stand in a corner, and you talk to somebody and say, well, why, what are you on this corner for? And they say, well, I go to this coffee shop. And you're like, oh, really? Does, do you have friends that go to this coffee shop? So you're trying to find out who's who in the zoo and uh, find out where people spend time, congregate. Are there any churches in this area? What do you think about God? This type of stuff. And so one of these afternoons, we're sharing the gospel out on the, this park, and it's just picturesque. I mean, it's, it is gorgeous. Nature's all around, and um, as my son would say, we're outside, that's nature. And, and so we're out and in, in experiencing nature, and, and there's this guy, and we walk over to it, and I've got two or three college students from, from Georgia, and I say, look, we're going to walk over, we have a gospel presentation all in check, we're going to let him listen to it. And so we walk over, and we start sharing with this student, and he says, hold on, hold on. I said, okay. You know, I can hold on. I don't have a real pressing schedule. I can, I can stand here for a few moments. Or I ended up sitting down beside him. And he takes out this pouch, and he gets it out, and he gets out this little paper, and he starts filling up this little thing. I'm like, oh, he's going to have a smoke. I can understand that, you know. Occasionally, you just got to have one, I guess. And so he takes it out, and I'm like, man, that, that's some really weird-looking tobacco. Whatever. Not here to judge. Just here to hang out. And uh, so the guy rolls it up, and he lights it up. I'm like, that is some really funky-smelling cloves you're lighting there. And uh, he goes on, he smokes this joint, and he finishes out, and he said, now that I'm quite high, we can talk. And I just remember thinking, this isn't something I was prepped and trained for uh, at missionary training school. They didn't cover, you know, first step one, get the person high. Step two, share the gospel. But that was the order that, that he prescribed for us in our sharing. But just whenever you set foot out and you engage somebody with the gospel... It, it can get uncomfortable. It can get weird. I, I'd never share the gospel within two feet of somebody that's, that's on a mission to get high so that he can get in a clear state of mind to understand what's going on. It was just, it was just wild. 
Now, I don't think you're going to see that necessarily if you walk the streets of Greenville, you walk into your neighbor's front yard, you go, hey, can I share the gospel with you? He says, hold on, pulls out the pouch. If they do that, let us know where they live and, and we'll help them uh, in some other ways. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let me read a portion of this for us and we'll get started. He says, as you come to him, talking of Jesus, he said, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's this amazing passage that it, it really, Peter is writing to a group of people that are, I mean, just suffering for the gospel. They've been uh, displaced. You'll see that if you flip over to the first part of 1 Peter, they're living in these different Roman provinces. He says, you know, you are the ones living out there in the dispersion. The heavy hammer of Rome fell on them, and they scattered. They're not living in places they grew up in. They're not seeing the people they're used to seeing. Their families have been split. They are suffering for the gospel. And Peter is seeking to encourage them in the midst of that suffering. And he writes to them about the person of Jesus. And he says, as you come to Jesus. As you come to Jesus, and Jesus is this living stone. He's, he's talking about Jesus in a way that is, that is calling back some of this Old Testament imagery. Some of the ways that Jesus has described himself in the Gospels. And it's this process, not of Peter recalling their salvation experience, as if to say, remember when you came to Jesus? Remember when God saved you? But it's this idea instead that as God is building them up into a spiritual house, that they are repeatedly, evermore, drawing closer and closer to the person of Jesus. Every day as they wake up again, they, they set their minds on what it is to come closer to Jesus, to draw closer and closer to him every single day. I mean, this doesn't happen by accident. It's not that you wake up in the morning and 9.30 rolls around. And you're like, ah, I don't know where my day went, but I spent the last hour and a half drawing closer to Jesus, and all I was doing was eating Fruit Loops and playing in my day. No, I mean, this is something you have to intentionally do. This is something you have to direct your energy and your time for. It's not going to happen by mistake. I mean, if you think you're going to grow in spiritual maturity, if you think you're going to draw closer to Jesus by mistake, you, you live a radically different life than I do. You live a radically, and I would say, deluded life. It's not going to happen. If you've been waiting for 20 years for your maturity in, in Christ just to blossom and grow, and you haven't done anything for it, that's insanity. If you want to grow closer to Jesus, if you want to be obedient to his word, and grow closer to him as a result of that obedience, then you have to set out and be purposed in that. It's not going to happen by accident. And so Peter presupposes that they are already involved in this process. He describes him as the living stone. He said he's the living stone. It, Jesus is alive and vibrant. And he is the one where you should draw life from. And then he automatically, he's moving to separate and show division. He says this, this living stone, this life-giving stone, he is rejected by men. Peter makes them acutely aware that, that it's not catching God off guard. God's not sitting in heaven saying, I wonder what people think of my son. He recognizes instead that there are men who have rejected Jesus. Our minds go to those that, that 
crucified him on the cross, and our minds go today to our brothers, to our sisters, to our children, to our parents, to our spouses, to our coworkers. I mean, your mind, if, if you were to set out and, and get a piece of paper and to, to write a list of all those you know who have rejected Jesus, it would likely be much longer than the list that you could also make of those who have accepted Jesus. Jesus tells us over and over again in, in the New Testament that, that more people will reject him than those that will come to know him. Following, accepting, believing on Jesus is a difficult way of life. It is not for the faint of heart. And he says, look, but as you come, you need to recognize that men have rejected him, but God looks down upon Jesus, and this is how he sees him, as chosen and precious. God looks down at that thing which was rejected by men, that thing which was, was, was scorned by men, and he declares him to be chosen and precious. Man, if that's how God sees Jesus, then how should we see Jesus? And when you're, when you're confronted with that reality, man, that God sees Jesus as chosen and precious, Think about your week. Think about the things that you did this past week. Think about the way that you've spent your time, spent your money. And just ask yourself this question. Is the way that you've spent your resources, is the way that you occupy your time a reflection of the men who have rejected Jesus or the God that declares him chosen and precious? And that is an arresting thought. That as God looks into your life, he's not, he's, not, he's not led astray by the facade that everybody else buys into. He's not led astray by the, oh, hey, brother, how are you? And that you know the Christianese. And so you can walk the halls of any church in the, in the lower 48 and, and just wow people with your, with your smattering of Christianese that you're able to throw out. Blessed be to you. What up? Bless Jesus. High five, Jesus. I'm going to raise my hands in like five minutes in the worship service and people are going to be like, man, Jesus is doing something in, in Brother Billy's life. He raised his hands when we sang. And he wasn't sure. Like, I mean, the guy is kicking B.O. and he was unashamed of Jesus. You see, God's not caught unawares. He's not surprised. When he pierces our hearts, he realizes those that also recognize his son as chosen and precious and those that really just wish he'd keep to himself. We don't reject him, but we really wish he'd just leave us alone. And he writes, and this is the amazing thing that Peter does. He says, look, Jesus is a living stone. And he draws this comparison to those he writes to. He says, and you yourselves like living stones. He doesn't write and he says, look, you guys are just like Jesus. But he says, you are like living stones. As we read in Ephesians and you read elsewhere that Jesus is living inside those he has redeemed, inside those he has ransomed. That God is doing something with you. That God is doing something with us as a corporate body. That he is building us into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That God comes into your life and he is reordering those things in your life. That he is laying claim to those things in your life and he is building you into something. He is, he is taking you and he is polishing you and make you, making you into something radically different. And one of the ways that he does that is through allowing us to encounter difficult circumstances. Hebrews tells us, and we read elsewhere, that every son whom he loves, he rebukes. 
that we should not hold in disdain the chastisement, the rebuke, the discipline of God. And that is a difficult thing. But God is making us into something for a purpose. He says he's coming together and he's taking us as living stones and building us into a spiritual house. Now when you look across this sanctuary this morning and you see all the members and guests and everything, if you were to imagine that each and every one of us were an individual stone, we're not all that, all that useful this morning, are we? I mean, we have some stones over here, we got some stones in the middle, we got some stones on this side, but we're all just kind of scattered and flat laying on the ground. Now imagine Jesus comes along and, and instead he says, okay, now you guys move right here. I'm going to take you and I'm going to add you in right here. And this is the role that you're going to play in building a spiritual home. And then he comes over to this group over here. He says, you guys, I'm going to take you and, and you too are going to be found being useful in building up this spiritual house. You see, he's not writing to a group of individuals. Our perspective as we read this from a Western concept is to say that what is, what is my role in this? But instead, very much the question is, what is our role in this? What is our role as the body of Christ? She is building us into a spiritual house for the purpose of being a holy priesthood. You'll know that if you spend any time in study of the Old Testament, that the priesthood was, was a group separate or distinct from the, the rest of the body. And their, their role, in large part, was to offer sacrifice. They were intermediaries, on some degree, in offering sacrifices for the nation of Israel. Now, here we read that Peter writes that he is making us. He is taking his church and he is building them into a, into a spiritual house, to be a spiritual priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, he didn't just save you so you could be comfortable. He didn't just save you so that you could escape the torment and the ravages of hell. But he saved you to make you into something that would bring further glory and honor to him. Peter writes here, he says, look, this is what he's made you. He's made you a holy priesthood that you can, you can come before God and not tremble in fear. You can come before God and not be devoured because you have the power of Jesus living inside you. That you live a life dedicated and surrendered to him. This is how you can come, through the blood of Christ. He calls us to offer spiritual sacrifices, which, which certainly sounds a lot better than than human sacrifice or animal sacrifice, does it not? I mean, there's, a, there's a, not a day that passes that I'm not just super grateful that we don't have some type of pit burning in the back where we're constantly roasting goats on, and, and you come up, you're like, man, I couldn't get a goat, but I got these two pigeons. What do two pigeons get me? I'm like, two pigeons and a silver coin get you a seat at the front. If you want to sit further back, I'm going to need to see a dove, Okay. And so this idea that, that I'm eternally grateful, not just because we don't have that stench, but because the sacrifice of Jesus radically changes everything for us. But he calls us to something far more significant. Far more significant. He calls us to offer spiritual sacrifices. I mean, if we're a holy priesthood, if our lives are devoted and given over to Christ, then everything we do falls under the realm of the spiritual. 
See, it's not just a couple of hours that you log in Sunday morning or Wednesday night or if you attend a life group, the time that you have in there that is dedicated to the spiritual. But it's if you work at L3, if you work at a bank, if you are staying at home with the kids, if you are commuting, all of these things should be done as spiritual sacrifices to God. Every area of your life. Man, the heart that you carry into this place when we sing songs, the demeanor, the, 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 the posture that you choose to assume is a reflection of your heart motivation before God. See, the way that you engage in worship, the way that you engage in living your lives is a response of what role will Jesus play in your life? He is calling us to submit spiritual sacrifices. But beyond that, we recognize that that there's nothing good that I can do. Matt can't do any amount of good that's going to be acceptable and pleasing before God. That even as I help little old ladies across the street, even as I mow my my neighbor's yard, which I haven't done that, they all have very big lots and I've got a push mower, but even as I go out and I do these things, that there's no amount of good or great that I can do that is going to make God smile and say, oh man, I am so glad you did that outside of the sacrifice of Christ. You see, the sacrifice of Christ comes into our good deeds and infuses them and it makes them acceptable before God. Without Jesus, any offering would not be acceptable before God. Continuing, he says, he begins to quote scripture here. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This this idea in this word cornerstone is introduced into this verse. And this is is how this would work. They would come along and they would take take a stone and they would set it right here on the corner. And they would take great care to select the right stone. They wanted it to be the right dimensions. They wanted it to, to have all of its angles set just so because everything else for the rest of the rest of the building would hinge on this cornerstone. The direction for each side, the, the height, everything is dependent on picking a good cornerstone. And so when Peter writes them and tells them, hey, look, his, his son is the cornerstone. God has set Jesus as the cornerstone. He's a living stone, absolutely, but he is the cornerstone. And again, back to this idea of being chosen and precious. He is chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If Jesus is the cornerstone, if Jesus is the most important thing in the world, in your lives, in the universe, how are you responding to the cornerstone of Jesus in your life? Maybe for you, you've taken Jesus and you said, look, he's a living stone and that's great and I want him to fit in my wall right here. I want him to shore up this aspect, this area of my life. I really want a better relationship with my spouse and and so I'm going to take him and I'm going to put him in right here because he's going to sanctify my relationship with my spouse. Or I I really want a better work environment so I'm going to take Jesus as this living stone and I'm going to insert him into my work or I'm going to insert him into academics or I'm going to insert him into family. And so we take him as a stone and we think it's our choice where we get to put him. We think that we want to put Jesus wherever wherever it fits us best. Wherever it's the most beneficial, wherever it, it just 
suits us. But as Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, see that he can't just be any stone on the wall. He can't just be any brick in your house. He's got to be what God sees him as. He's got to be the cornerstone. And we see this promise in there. That everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. That everyone who looks at Jesus and recognizes him to be chosen and precious, who believes on him for salvation, there is no shame for you. There is no threat, there is no impending doom, there is no promise of hell and separation from God, there is no punishment for you in that. How do you consider Jesus? Are you living a life that gives testament to the fact that he is the cornerstone as declared by God? Continuing on, Peter writes, he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He turns to the Christians, he says, look, the honor is for you. He says, shame falls on those who look at Jesus and want nothing to do with him. Shame falls on those who look at Jesus and say, look, that's just too difficult. That's just too demanding. I just don't want any aspect of him in my life. Peter says, but for you, for you who believe, there's honor for you. He says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118.22. He says, look, they went through and and, you know, any, any builder that's worth anything is going to inspect the materials he's using, is he not? He's going to inspect the materials that he's using. He's going to evaluate all levels and, and parts of the process. And if that builder knew that there was one piece of equipment, one, one material that was integral to the success of his project, he would give careful, careful inspection of it. And this is the, the picture Peter paints, that as they came out and they assessed all the material, they, they overlooked the cornerstone. They overlooked Jesus. They were just like those who rejected, those men that rejected. They didn't see that God had designated Jesus to be chosen and precious. Instead, they looked at him and they said, no, we don't want anything to do with that. Continuing on this idea, Peter writes and he says that, Beyond this, he's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And this is Isaiah 8, 14. He says, look, this is the way that God has set this up. He says he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You can't find safety and security with God outside of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, this word here rendered by the ESV as, as disobey really connotes more an idea of being not persuaded. This, this Greek verb, which if you don't negate it, just means to persuade, here is, is negated, it is, it is the opposite, and these people are not persuaded by the word. They're not persuaded by the word that as they've gone out and they've considered Jesus, it's, it, it, they have looked at him, they have, saw, have seen what it would cost them, they have evaluated his worth, and they have found him wanting. I mean, you probably know people like this that 
that look at Christianity, you talk to them about Jesus and his love for them and his sacrificial death for them, and they say, I'm just not interested. I mean, that, that, that's, that's great for you, but Jesus isn't for me. This is the way that God has set it up. That those who disobey the word will continue to stumble over Jesus. This is what is destined for those that refuse to be persuaded by Jesus. They will continue to trip, to stumble, to find him an obstacle to coming into relation with God. And just as the Jews, who when Jesus came out and he made these bold proclamations about who he was and how he was there in such a unique way to fulfill the, the, the will of God, they couldn't integrate Jesus into their understanding of theology. They couldn't integrate Jesus into the rule of their lives. And they said, no, I can't, I can't do that. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. All those who disobey the word will find themselves being put to shame as Peter writes. Moving into verse 9. Peter has spent this time talking about trying to draw a division between the men that rejected it, those that believed, those that believe will not be put to shame, those that disobey and move against will stumble over Jesus. And in verse 9 he says, but you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. I mean, this is, this is blowing their mind at this point. These people come from from, from backwater, nothing towns, scattered over the Roman Empire. And, and Peter's blowing their minds right now. They come from diverse backgrounds. They see them of all, all races and ethnicities, all different cultural backgrounds. They do a variety of things on the weekends. I mean, these aren't all rednecks. If they were living with us today, they wouldn't all be circling around a TV watching NASCAR on the weekends. Some would watch NASCAR. Some would watch water polo. Which I don't even know if that's televised. Some would be watching, you know, for the next chess tournament. These people come from a variety of backgrounds. Man, their, their culinary delights are different. They are diverse. They're every shade and color of the rainbow. They have every, every past and history is different. But he writes to them and he says, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. God intervened in your life to bring you to salvation. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. He is elevating them beyond what they ever thought appropriate. He said you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. God owns you. This isn't to make you understand your place in the situation, but this is to see how highly God treasures you. Just as it was true for those caught up in the dispersion that Peter wrote to, God would say that same thing to us today, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are a chosen race. He would look at us and he would say that we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, different cultures. We value different things, but we are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. A holy nation of people for his own possession. For what purpose? What purpose has he called us? What purpose has he made us into this group? What purpose does he help us to find our identity in a corporate expression and not an individualized result of that? He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You want to be blown away? 
You know why God saved you? As it's reported here in 1 Peter. You know why he took you and he, he brought you together with people from divergent backgrounds and educations and value systems and, and television preferences and food preferences. And some of you in this building even like spam. And, and we're coming together and we're a holy nation together. Man, he did it not to show that, that, that he can have us all get along. He did it not so that we could all come together and we could give a couple hours of our mornings every Sunday. But he did it. He's making us into this people so that we'll tell others about him. He did it and he is doing it so that we will proclaim. Now that so you live a life as a, uh, an anonymous Christian, not so that you can go into your workplace and, and you are, I mean, you, are, you work diligently. Your boss says, man, you're the most efficient employee I've ever gotten. Inside you're burning, you're saying, it's because Jesus is Lord of my life. But externally, you stick out your hand and say, thank you, sir. I'll be here every day, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock. I don't take lunch and I wear a diaper. And so I don't even need bathroom breaks. You see, it's this idea that Jesus transforms every facet of our being, but not so that we can be anonymous Christians. Not so that we can beat people over the head with the Bible, but so that we might love them and that we might be caught up in the proclamation of his love for us. See, when we recognize Jesus as chosen and precious, when we recognize Jesus as cornerstone, when we live lives with a proper understanding of who he is, it makes us a people who boldly proclaim what he's done for us. See, we should never enter into the conversation together and say, when's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? Because we should be a people who are continuously sharing our faith, who live a life of vibrant testimony before Jesus because we are his possession and we are boldly proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see what Peter does there? He's calling them to a recognition that they were once in darkness. He was calling them to a recognition that man, you were lost, you were in dark, and God, through Jesus, he intervened. Man, he, he, he got in your life, he, he worked in there, and he called you unto salvation. You were in darkness, you were lost. And you bought it into the greatest news ever. That Jesus died to save sinners. And that just as Paul would proclaim, so you too proclaim. And I am chief among those. Man, if God did something so gracious, so amazing, so awesome for you. Don't you want to see him do that for others too? Don't you want to see him do that for others too? And calling back one more time. He draws them into this understanding. He says, once you were not a people. He said, look, you lived in, in different areas and you had different values and, and, and you didn't associate with God. He said, but now you are God's people. He said, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy at the hand of God. So you recognize that there was a point in your life, there was a whole way of existence that was contrary to God. Man, maybe you were a good person. Maybe you did good things. You, didn't, you don't have some amazing transformation story of, of being on the, the brink of insanity and, 
in all of these things. But no matter how good that you have led yourself to believe that you were, God demands perfection. And in Jesus, he reckoned you perfect. In Jesus, he reckoned you perfect. Once you existed and you lived this tenuous life without mercy. But God came in and he extended to you a lavish display of love, grace, and mercy in the person of Jesus. You see, as we reflect on what our identity should be here at Ridgecrest, we absolutely want to be a church that is, founda- is founded on the ministry of the Word. We want to be growing in our faith as Christians. We want to be a church that doesn't just operate here. We don't just operate for a couple hours every week, but we want to be found working in our community, working and serving as a result of our submission to Jesus. We have got to be a church that goes. We've got to be a church that recognizes that the, the, the importance of the gospel, the imperative of the gospel in the life change that Jesus affects in us mandates that we proclaim his goodness, that we proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. We need to be a church that if somebody walks into this community, if they walk in any gas station in Greenville, and they walk up to the clerk and they say, hey, can you, can you let me know about Jesus? And that clerk would say, look, I might not be able to tell you, but I know, no church, I know a church in town that those people would trip over themselves to tell you about Jesus. That's the identity we need. That's the focus we need. And you know how we get there? When we start recognizing that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he owns us, that he is chosen and precious, and we so cherish Jesus that we find ourselves lovingly submitting to him. What role does Jesus play in your life? And do you find yourself in obedience to him, or do you find yourself like so many others that have relegated Jesus to the corner? Think about uh, Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell, who, who many of you have probably heard of, if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, then you probably got that song going through your head, and you can enjoy that over lunch. But Eric Liddell is most widely recognized and, and famous for his winning of the 400 meters. And for those of you who haven't seen this movie, I'll save you two or three hours. Eric Liddell is a Scotsman, and he is headed to compete in the Olympics in 1924 in Paris. And he is a sprinter. Guy runs the 100 meters. I mean, amazing. Hussein Bolt would leave him, you know, standing in his sneakers. But, but, but Liddell is phenomenal for his day. And he finds out that the, that the race is going to be run on a Sunday. Now, in the movie, he finds it out close to the event. In reality, he found it out months prior. And so this event that he had dedicated his life, that he'd found himself being, being really built for, he, he recognized that he would have to make a, a decision. And so he went according to his understanding of God and the role God plays in his life, and so he, he chose not to run in the race. 
And instead, he began to train for the 400 meter, which if you've, if you've run, there's a vast difference between running 100 meters as fast as you can and, and the strategy, which is still lost on me, of, of running 400 meters semi as fast as you can and faster and faster and faster until you feel like your lungs are going to come out of your mouth. But, but that's what he was faced with. And you'll remember in the movie that he runs the 400 meters and he wins, and it's this great celebration that this man stuck to his morals, he stuck to the thing that he knew God was calling him to. But if you watch the movie, that's where it stops. But what you recognize if you read deeper into Liddell's life, I mean, this is a guy that, that days after winning gold in Paris for the 400 meters, found himself enrolling in the school so that he could go be a missionary to China. Liddell, who was, who was known to be a runner and, and was, was sought after to come and speak and to receive large sums of money, abandoned all of it because he understood Jesus to be the cornerstone of his life. He abandoned all of it. He abandoned fame. He abandoned success because he understood that Jesus and the role he plays in his life would not allow him to put himself first. And so he rolled in training, he became a missionary to China, and he moved to China in a really interesting time in history. Ends up living there for a number of years, and then war is about to break out. People are fleeing China, but Liddell stays on still, because the role of Jesus is cornerstone in his life, mandated that he be obedient even if it cost him his life. Liddell found himself in China in 1941 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and at the same time they were moving in China to subjugate the people, and they were moving men and women into internment camps. He had sent his wife and three children back to Canada for their own safety, but he stayed in China for an additional four years. He had repeated opportunities to escape, repeated opportunities to flee, but the role of Jesus in his life is cornerstone, that he saw Jesus as precious and chosen. He saw that God had called him to communicate that message to others. And so he gave his life to serving God in a faraway land because of the conviction he had about who Jesus is. This is a man that in 2000, right before the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese government came forward and they said that during the process when, when Eric was held in the concentration camp or in the internment camp, there was a prisoner exchange. And they were going to give a Japanese prisoner for Eric Liddell. And he looked around, and this is a wife whose wife and three kids are living in a different country. He looked around, and he found a pregnant woman in the camp. And he sent her in his stead. See, he had freedom. But he recognized that freedom outside of obedience to Jesus is worthless. We have an amazing opportunity to reflect Jesus in our walk. Will you live a life that reflects Jesus' cornerstone and be obedient to proclaim the excellencies of his grace and his mercy? Or will you be like so many that reject Jesus and relegate him to the convenient aspects of your life? Let me pray for us.